Hello and welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and I'm the founder of PCOS Diva. And my mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control of their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. This podcast is sponsored by my new book, Healing PCOS, a 21-day plan that takes you step-by-step through healing and thriving with PCOS. It's all in there waiting for you, beginning with the three keys to living your best life as a PCOS diva. For more details, visit HealingPCOS.com. So today I'm welcoming back one of my favorite podcast guests, Dr. Rashmi Khadija. She is a PCOS diva contributor and she's written lots of great articles um, at PCOSdiva.com. Her latest one is a really interesting article about PCOS and bone health, so check that out. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about the impact of quality of life um, for women with PCOS and I want to just give you a little intro, um, Dr. Khadija. You are a board-certified reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist. You practice at Houston IVF in Houston, Texas, and you joined Houston IVF recently uh, after practicing in New York City, where you were named a New York Super Doctors Rising Star in 2016 and 17. So welcome back to the PCOS Diva podcast. Thanks, Amy. My pleasure. It's so exciting to be back. Well, I sort of view you as one of my go-to experts um, when, you know, there's some new research out or, um, you know, really needing to dig into, um, you know, the the PubMed studies and articles (laughs) because you are just an expert at mining sort of the data and um, helping us understand in a layman's term what's really um, happening out there in studies, and and I asked you if we could talk about quality of life and, and sort of the research that is coming out about the impact of a PCOS diagnosis. So I'm just going to let you kind of um, set the stage for us. Yeah, of course. So <clears throat> I think one of the reasons that I also love sort of helping to translate the scientific literature into blogs and podcasts like this one, um, you know, alongside you is because I think with PCOS, there is such a gap. Uh, Not only obviously are there things we don't understand scientifically at all, but then taking that the next step and sort of explaining what that means, you know, to women that may be, um, you know, thinking that they have PCOS or have a confirmed diagnosis or even doctors that are taking care of patients with PCOS. There's just so many gaps in there. So it's kind of fun to try to plug in those holes and see if we can do a little bit better. So one of the reasons that this topic is super Um, important to me is because, you know, really, actually, I was going back to look at the original study. So um, the first study that uh, utilized the questionnaire that I'm going to talk about a little bit, which is called the PCOS Quality of Life Questionnaire, or the PCOSQ, um, it was actually published back in 1998. Um, But there have been about 30-some papers that have cited it um, since then. And uh, really, the thing that I like about it is forgetting about the research piece. I think it also guides my clinical practice a lot because it focuses on kind of five main areas that may affect women that have PCOS. Um, And those are infertility, uh, abnormal uterine bleeding or irregular periods, uh, extra body or facial hair, uh, weight issues, and then emotional health. Um, And for me, I think that 
the reason that that's super helpful is because when I'm talking to somebody, you know, even if they came in just telling me, okay, well, I'm here because I'm having difficulty getting pregnant, I think it's important to kind of take a step back, look at the holistic picture, and think about those other four domains and think to myself, okay, or to ask, you know, are, are all of the things that could potentially be affecting her something we've discussed? Um, and so, you know, that I think is, is partly why I love that questionnaire because I think it helps to keep very concrete um, sort of the five main areas, although there are a lot of other things that could be going on, but just kind of getting a starting point to make sure that we've talked about uh, everything from a comprehensive standpoint. Um, so I think that's that's partly why um, it's really interesting. And, and the scientific literature does clearly show that there is a decreased quality of life for women that, that have PCOS. And partly what I think is very uh, interesting, and I hope we'll understand it better in the future, is whether it's just because, you know, all of these things are potentially going on and isn't that enough to affect quality of life and, um, you know, that makes sense as a possible explanation or you know, is there something about, you know, sort of the, you know, differences in neurotransmitters or serotonin or other, you know, other balances of other chemicals and hormones that we have in our body that's also affected by having PCOS. And so there's another, you know, explanation or a link that's going on and, and we don't really know that answer yet. Yeah, I've always often wondered that. And I've seen, um, you know, in my, my journeys online that there's some people think that women with PCOS may be low in serotonin and, you know, that could also, um, you know, account for like the cravings, the, the mm -hmm. sugar and carb cravings that we have and the low mood. Is that, is that something that you've come across? Yeah, I've definitely seen, um, you know, people talk about that. Um, it's not one of the things that there's a lot of, you know, conclusive mm -hmm. studies on one way or another. But, you know, aside from the, the things I already mentioned, you know, something else that I, I've started to see a few more papers on and, and that I think is just absolutely central to our health as, as human beings is sleep and sleep mm -hmm. quality. And that's another thing that, you know, helps regulate all of these chemicals and hormones, you know. And so we find there are higher levels of disordered sleeping um, in women that have PCOS and that's, you know, maybe partially related, obviously, for some individuals that may be um, having a little extra weight and, and sleep apnea issues. But even aside from that, um, there is a connection. And so certainly, you know, you could imagine that if you're not sleeping well, um, or you're having really bad sleep quality, um, that that's also going to throw off your circadian rhythm and all these other chemicals and, and lead to, um, you know, mood and quality of life issues. So I think that there's a lot um, tied in there. And, and I just feel like I see a scattering of things here and there, but it, it's not enough to kind of make some good conclusions yet. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you mentioned sort of throwing off that circadian rhythm. I, I think that a lot of women with PCOS, you know, have a, the adrenal issues. And so mm. they, I'm finding in, in, um, that many women have sort of that inverse cortisol curve where yeah. they're like um, wired but tired because their cortisol ends up being high at night. But, you know, they're like a zombie getting up in the morning because it's low in the morning where it should kind of be inverse. I don't know if that's something that you see in your patients as well. Yeah, and I think uh, definitely, and I, you know, obviously, in general, people come in and, you know, if you ask them, are you tired? Obviously, everybody's mm -hmm. tired. But yes, if you drill down, um, you know, into it, I think just as you're saying, I think that there are a lot of people that, that demonstrate that exact pattern. Um, and, you know, again, all of these things kind of, 
kind of go together. You know, if somebody is having a lot of issues that could be related to this diagnosis and it's stressing them out, for example, obviously I primarily take care of fertility patients and obviously trying to get pregnant and it's not working is one of the most stressful things that anybody can go through. And so obviously you're now maybe having PCOS and now stressed out more about, you know, fertility, you're churning out cortisol like crazy, um, for sure, you know, you're going to see all of those typical things, 100%. But, and I think that this is, you know, looking at the whole quality of life and, and the different domains, too, it's, it's moving towards sort of treating the whole person rather than just the symptoms. So, yeah. you know, I love that you as an, you know, IVF doctor, you're not just looking at infertility, but, you know, you're asking patients about their sleep and, um, you know, looking at you know, everything as as a whole rather than just the specific symptoms. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think we can all do better at that, and but it is really important to me. I think that uh, there's no way to sort of address, you know, one of these issues in isolation because they're all tied together. And right. certainly, you know, I think sometimes people come in um, and they want to talk about, you know, the thing that's foremost on their mind. But if I tell somebody, you know, okay, we're going to work on your treatment for whatever issue, but here are some things that you can try to concretely do to maybe make yourself feel better or to be healthier. You know, I think that sense of control and giving somebody back, you know, here are the things that you can do. Here's the ways that you can intervene, I think is really important because you can't just rely on your doctor to do everything for you. I think that actually mentally that doesn't help people um, to just sort of think that, you know, everything is going to be done because I'm doing IVF. And so now, you know, the doctor is going to handle all of that. Obviously, I think it helps people to feel that they're in charge of their own body. Um, and we can't get that feeling unless we've sort of talked about all of the things that could be going on. Right. So I'm just curious, in that, that survey, does it rank, um, you know, the areas that are most um, troublesome to women? Yeah, so basically what what it is, and it's been used and, and validated all over the, the world, actually, in different countries, but basically it gives you a score on each of those five issues and then also just an overall score. And so, for example, you know, I have done, um, you know, a small research study using it uh, back when I was uh, still in training, and, you know, I think that one of the things I wanted to mention about that, uh, which... I've also seen in other studies that have used it that I think is interesting is that, you know, the scores that people are are reporting and how they actually feel don't always line up with objective measures. Meaning, for example, in that study that I did as a fellow, we were looking at race and ethnicity and and, in women that have PCOS and does that affect um, their quality of life. And we found that, for example, while some ethnic groups may have on average in this study, and there were probably about 20 women in each group, so it wasn't a huge study, but, um, you know, we're looking at um, the kind of comparison between things. And one of the things we noted was that, for example, the women that had a higher body mass index, so, you know, sort of higher weight for their height, weren't the ones that were actually reporting a higher level of distress over their own body weight. And so, you know, if you looked at the av- the average BMI for, for example, Latina women, who in, in our study showed the highest level of distress um, over their, their weight, Um, they were actually one of the lower body mass index groups. And so, you know, again, as a doctor, it's very helpful to me because it sort of helps me to realize that I can't just look at the numbers and say, okay, well, these are the issues that somebody's having. Obviously, they could be thinking and experiencing distress for a variety of different reasons, and the numbers on the page don't don't tell me all of that. So you really have to talk to people. Um, And obviously, as a patient, you have to advocate for yourself and say, look, this is something I'm struggling with. And, you know, even if it's just that last five to 10 pounds that you want to lose, or just want to feel healthier or more energetic, um, you know, it's very important to mention these things. So Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, but basically when we look at it comparatively, we see that, you know, for example, certain parts of the world, we know that ethnically women are going to have more issues with hirsutism, so they might have more, you know, hair issues. Some people might be more prone to getting weight gain, especially like the tummy weight. Um, so, you know, we see those variations when we do the study in different patient populations or across the world, but, um, you know, it just helps to, um, I think, remind us to think about all of the issues. So, and when you're saying mood disorders, um, are, are, are they, were the researchers looking at like anxiety as well or just depression or? So that does, it asks both uh, kinds of questions, but I think, you know, since then, um, since that, we have seen a couple of big publications that have looked at anxiety and depressive disorders in women that have PCOS and the findings there were shocking. And that, you know, um, is another, I think, important thing that I wanted to talk about, because obviously Mm -hmm. it ties to to the quality of life issue. Um, And, you know, really, the biggest study um, that was done was a big systematic review and meta-analysis, meaning that sort of looking at, excuse me, looking at all of the prior studies that have been done in these areas and putting them all together and saying, okay, well, now that we've pooled all of these studies and subjects, what can we find? And, you know, really, they found a three to five-fold increase in anxiety and depressive disorders, depending on exactly what you're talking about, um, you know, in women that have PCOS versus those that don't. So that's huge. I mean, that means that your odds of, of experiencing either symptoms or an actual diagnosis are three to five times higher. That That's very significant. Um, and so, uh, again, I think it's something that, that, you know, those papers came out within the past year or two. So um, I think important to um, kind of help people think about and, and make sure that people are being uh, taken care of, especially in this country where our mental health resources are not always so great and insurance coverage is not so great. So it's very, I think, important to talk about. So do you think that, that more doctors are screening their, <coughs> excuse me, screening their patients with PCOS for mood disorders now? Because I hope. I certainly hope so. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think those papers, you know, were, they were presented at our um, American Society for Reproductive Medicine meeting, uh, not even this past one, but um, in October of 2016, I guess it was. Um, And so, you know, I think that um, probably, you know, more and more people are thinking about these issues. But the problem is that, you know, and you alluded to it earlier, is that in our subspecialty of reproductive endocrinology, there's only a few of us that that really focus on non-infertility issues. And so actually, as it turns out, I think that most of the doctors that are taking care of women that have PCOS are oftentimes your, you know, your, your uh, general OBGYN, um, which is obviously a huge link. And, you know, they have a million things that they need to be keeping up on. So I, I find that in general, you know, that PCOS is a very confusing um, topic for the general OBGYN because it's, you know, a very, um, the kind of the the topics keep changing. There's a lot we don't understand. um, And it's one of, like I said, a million things they need to keep up on. And in fact, there was a study that just came out last year also that was a survey study of uh, basically providers taking care of women um, with PCOS. And in that study, almost a quarter couldn't identify which diagnostic criteria they were using. Um, for their own patients. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a little concerning to me that, you know, of people that say themselves that they take care of women that have PCOS, a quarter of those doctors aren't even sure which uh, diagnostic criteria they're using to to define PCOS. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, people really should feel empowered to find, you know, the right doctor that really feels comfortable doing this because it's not all OBGYNs or it's not all uh, endocrinologists, you know, not not everybody in, in any given subspecialty feels, I think, super passionate or super um, up to date on what's going on with PCOS. 
So can I ask you what diagnostic criteria you use or your office uses? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, so typically we use the Rotterdam criteria, and I've talked about that in a couple of my blog posts, but it's the most umbrella of all of the terms, um, meaning that you have to have at least two out of three things. So um, you have to have, you know, out of the three things that you could have, one would be that the ovaries look, you know, quote unquote polycystic on ultrasound, which doesn't mean that you have a cyst. It just is a typical uh, way that they might look. Um, the periods uh, would be either irregular or not coming at all. And then there's some sort of signs either from symptoms or blood work that would indicate a higher than average level of the male hormones or the androgens. So out of those three things to qualify with Rotterdam, you have to have at least two. Um, and, you know, we know that certain, um, certain phenotypes or certain ways of meeting that criteria are more likely to be associated with having other issues down the line. So, for example, if somebody has the very typical PCOS um, by what we you know, call the, the NIH criteria or the National Institutes of Health criteria, that means, um, you know, forgetting about the ultrasound piece, that's the other two things. So irregular cycles and, and, and high androgen levels. Um, you know, women that meet those criteria tend to have a little bit more uh, metabolic issues, so weight gain, diabetes, things like that. Um, so, you know, I could sort of use the Rotterdam to catch everybody so I can make sure that, you know, we're thinking about all of the people that may be experiencing these symptoms, um, but then be also more specific to say, okay, well, depending on what exactly you're coming in with, your risks might be higher or lower than somebody else. So, you know, it's kind of thinking through all of the ways that we meet the criteria. So in a, um, a previous podcast that we did together, we talked about um, menopause and PCOS. And, mm. um, you know, I know it's really hard, like women now that are in perimenopause, approaching menopause, that never really got a PCOS diagnosis. And I, I could tell you, I hear from so many that they think, well, maybe I did have PCOS at one point, but mm -hmm. now, you know, my, you know, I'm going through perimenopause, menopause, so I don't really have regular cycles or cycles. You know, do I still have PCOS? Um, and, but they're still struggling with other symptoms. Um, it, but I mean, quality of life still is, an issue for for a lot of these women that have kind of gone undiagnosed for years. A hundred percent, and you know, I think that in general, um, you know, there there is a growing awareness of this issue of lack of diagnosis. Uh, and actually, that's another thing I, I did want to talk about because the the most recent study suggests that there's at least a two plus year delay. And in some of these cases, like you're mentioning, it could be decades of delay um, and potentially upwards of, you know, two to three providers before somebody that has PCOS gets the diagnosis. So that's like now. So, um, you know, basically what that means is that women are kind of reporting these symptoms to different doctors over a course of years before they actually get the diagnosis. So I could totally imagine that, you know, that's now. So I could totally imagine that, you know, for women that are perimenopausal now, you know, if they were reporting these symptoms, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, that, you know, they, they may not have been heard. Um, and that's very frustrating because obviously it's hard to make the diagnosis either, you know, right at, at puberty when your periods are starting or on the other end when things are becoming irregular as one would expect as you approach menopause. So it definitely makes it trickier to, um, to get the diagnosis hammered out at that time. But again, you know, going back to what I said before, I think that a lot of 
um, you know, quality of life and, and mental health is about understanding what's going on with your body and, you know, being able to control it a little bit. And so I can't even imagine how frustrating it could be to think, you know, that after 40, however many years of having had, you know, your menstrual cycle, that now you find out that here's the explanation for why, you know, it was never regular that whole time. That would be incredibly frustrating. I know. I mean, I had symptoms when I was in my teens, um, but never got diagnosed till I was 30. Yeah. Um, when I was um, finally by a reproductive endocrinologist. But uh, I'm glad to hear that 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 num you know if, if that study is true that it's that that number is kind of the, we're closing the gap I guess um, to you know two years or so. But <laughs> I um, hope so. I know. Um, but I do want to ask you since I since you know I have you here, what do you think about di- diagnosing adolescents? I know I hear from so many moms who say, "Well, my 14-year-old has been diagnosed with PCOS." I tend to feel like that's kind of young, unless they're, um, you know, maybe they're mo- like they're really presenting themselves with you know the herstoism and the and obesity, but I don't know. I just think 14 is young. Like, yeah. what, what are, what's your thoughts on diagnosing adolescents in PCOS? And I know there's some studies saying that there's a lot of overdiagnosis in that age population. For sure, mm-hmm. there is. Um, and I think that it's kind of a tightrope situation where you have to kind of walk the line between not overdiagnosing um, because, you know, the symptoms overlap. Obviously, as we know, it's pretty normal when you first get your period for it to be irregular. Teenagers are going to have acne. You're developing body hair for the first time. So, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on that make it very difficult to sort of sort out, well, it's just normal puberty. Is this PCOS? Um, But at the same time, you know, one of the things I talk about in, in one of the talks that I give is, you know, sort of the failure to identify somebody that's at risk. So in that talk, one of the sort of case studies I present is, okay, let's think about a mom, um, you know, who had PCOS herself. She used Clomid to get pregnant. You know, I'm sort of giving an example of, you know, a, a teenager that might come see you, and this is her, her mom's history. So her mom had PCOS, used Clomid to get pregnant, now, you know, had gestational diabetes during that pregnancy, and now you see this child who's now, you know, 15, let's say, and, you know, she started her period, and they're still irregular, and she's, you know, gaining a little bit too much weight, and she's showing some symptoms of insulin resistance, you know, what do you do? And I think that you can't really necessarily give that girl a diagnosis firmly, but if you sort of say, well, if you think to yourself, well, maybe she's going to have it, but I'll talk to her about that in five years, you're also doing her a disservice, right? Because you've, A, you know, what if she moves and you never see her again and you've missed the opportunity to sort of help teach her and her mother about what could be going on? And two, you know, even if if you see those that constellation of symptoms, there are interventions that make sense in terms of healthy lifestyle that are that are important regardless of whether she ends up having PCOS or not, right? So it's something to bring up. So I always think of it not as I'm going to give a teenager a diagnosis, but I'm going to say this could be what's going on. Let's talk about what it could mean. Let's allay your concerns. You know, this is manageable, especially if you kind of start managing it early. Um, and, you know, we'll revisit it in a few years if, you know, the periods are still irregular and, and all of these things are going on. We do know that, you know, if somebody continues to have irregular cycles two to three years into having 
having their period, um, chances are it will stay that way, more likely than not. So it's not just totally normal. If somebody, you know, got their period when they were 13 and now they're 16 and they're, you can't just tell them, well, you're a teenager, it's normal mm-hmm. to have irregular cycles. It's not really uh, anymore. So at that point, so everybody's a little bit different. I never tell a teenager you 100% have PCOS, but I might tell them, you know, it looks that way. Um, and, you know, we're going to follow along and here are the things that you can do to kind of stay healthy and not, you know, gain too much weight or, you know, all the things that they might be concerned about. All right. So I'm, I'm really curious what you say to girls um, in terms of their fertility, because I can't tell you how many women, and I was one of them, whose doctor, okay, now I, I um, well, I wasn't diagnosed with, they didn't never said the words PCOS, but they said right. they'd have to jump through hoops one day to get me pregnant when I was 18, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. So you told me this story and that makes me really sad because, you know, I, I, I've heard, I've seen many patients that told me that too, that, you know, they were told that either they would never be able to have children or, you know, whatever. And, and obviously that's not true. Um, and so actually, um, you know, I say the opposite, which is that, you know, most likely you will be able to have children when you're ready. Um, you know, and, uh, the good news is that, you know, there are things you can do to keep it that way. Right. So, you know, trying to stay healthy generally, you know, using safe sex practices. These are all things that I would tell a teenager, you know, that are things that protect your future fertility. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things um, in one of the papers that, uh, that I wrote about fertility counseling for adolescents, which seems like a, I don't know, a provocative idea, I suppose. But the idea was to me that, you know, learning about your fertility is part of, you know, just normal sex education that people should understand from a young age. And, and the phrase that we use in that paper is, you know, um, getting pregnant at the right weight and the right way and at the right time. So, um, you know, so those are all, you know, the things and and thinking about how you can protect your fertility in the future. So um, there's one study that looks at fertility concerns among teenagers diagnosed with PCOS, and it shows that they're actually more worried than their peers that don't have PCOS. Um, and they don't necessarily need to be. So I think that I tell people, you know, you have to use contraception because even if you think you're not ovulated, you may, you know, you may actually ovulate here and there and you might get pregnant. So if you don't want to get pregnant at that time, you have to use birth control of some kind. Um, and, you know, when you're ready, you come in, we'll talk about it. But, you know, chances are as long as you, you know, are otherwise healthy and you don't wait too long, um, you'll be okay. Well, and just that counseling, um, Dr. Khadija, is going to improve the quality of life for a young girl. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's what I think, you know, that's, that's why this topic is just really close to my heart, because I think that, um, you know, the, the, the quality of counseling that people or girls or women get on this on this particular issue of PCOS is really subpar, I think. And, and again, part of it is because there are things we don't know, but I think part of it is because it takes time and it's nuanced and it's, you know, um, something that changes over time. You know, when we think about these, all these different issues, one of the other things I like to teach the residents that are training with me is, you know, this changes over time. So if you see somebody there's 22, they might be worried about their period being irregular. And if you are their gynecologist and you follow with them for 10 years, you know, then you might be talking more about their fertility. And then another 10 years from now, you might be talking about something else. So it's kind of like watching something change and and blossom over time and, and how you can help at different points along the way. Um, And so it's just not straightforward. Yeah, especially if they're improving their lifestyle. I'm sure you really see that in the lab results. Um, 
It's like the yeah. proof in the pudding, right? Exactly. That's the best. That's the best. You know, when we get the results that people are looking for and, and they're actually making the effort, that's very, uh, very rewarding and it's just very exciting. So speaking of labs, I, I know, you know, we talked about, um, you mentioned sleep apnea is something that, you know, women with PCOS deal with. I know thyroid conditions are, um, how, how are these related diagnoses like often missed in women with PCOS? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And, and I think that, um, I think, uh, in April, I think I'll be um, sending you guys a blog post about thyroid and PCOS, so stay tuned for that one. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that um, there are a lot of things that overlap, and it becomes very difficult to sort out the difference. So, you know, some of the symptoms are, are going to be similar between, a, you know, some of these things. So, for example, hypothyroid. Now, now, thyroid should be one thing that's ruled out before you give somebody a PCOS diagnosis in the first place, but let's say somebody has PCOS, and now, you know, down the line, um, they develop thyroid issues, which could totally happen, um, you know, it may get missed because it's all just being attributed to the diagnosis that's already there. So I think, you know, it's true that sometimes people have to push a little bit harder, I think, to really get, you know, a diagnosis um, of certain things um, once it's already there. Uh, part of the screening guidelines um, for PCOS that come from the Endocrine Society, you know, are actually pretty, you know, whenever I mention them, people are always surprised, but they focus really on, um, they, do, they do include quality of life, but they um, also really focus on metabolic diseases. So looking at, you know, uh, where somebody's lipids are and making sure that they're not developing diabetes or prediabetes. So they're very focused on those things, which are very important. And so, um, but those really suggest that you should be screening for those kind of metabolic issues every two years. Um, um, or maybe even sooner if somebody, you know, suddenly gains a lot of weight or something like that. So I would posit that most women are not getting that level of screening, even though that's the recommendation. And certainly some of these other things that are, you know, um, you know, kind of linked, but maybe um, aren't part of the guidelines in any which way are probably, you know, missed, um, I think, with some regularity. I don't really have a great answer as to how to avoid that, but I would say that if somebody has had you know, PCOS for a long time, um, and they sort of know what their symptoms are. And now, you know, you're noticing that you feel, you know, kind of more so one way or another, or a different constellation of symptoms, um, that I would keep track of it and sort of kind of come in and say, okay, these are the things that have changed. And I really, you know, need help kind of figuring out why this could be happening. Because I'm sure there's an overlap um, between a lot of different conditions. But you know, some things, um, you know, if you start mentioning the right words or if you notice the right symptoms, um, I think it will pop out the diagnosis much quicker. And, and part of that is we're all so busy, but I think it's just keeping track of how your body is changing um, and, you know, and just sort of like, you know, usually things happen gradually, but once you notice, hey, something is different now, kind of tracking it and bringing that into to your doctor. I, I never mind when somebody comes in and they have a whole list of things that they've been tracking, um, you know, that's actually helpful for me to be able to say, okay, well, this is what's changed over time and maybe that is you know this and so we need to test for it um, but there are a lot of things and, and one of the things for example um, you know when we think about PCOS we think about um, the hirsutism a lot you know so extra facial or body hair but on the flip side one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know about is sort of the um, hair loss that can happen so um, kind of like a male pattern um, hair loss and um, you know that's another thing that can be associated with PCOS and that's super distressing to quality of life um, for women to have, you know, that degree of, of hair loss. And so, 
you know, again, same sort of thing. I have told a number of people, oh, that is probably related to your PCOS, and they were shocked, and then also a little bit relieved to at least know why it was happening to them. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there are just so many things that could be linked, and it's just, you know, you, people should feel empowered to come in and say, well, this is what I'm noticing. Can you explain it, you know, in any which way? Yeah, and, and I think that's why I really started PCOS Diva is to kind of have a hub of, you know, evidence-based um, totally. articles and so that, you know, if you do have a symptom, um, search it on PCOS Diva because chances are I've written or somebody else, one of my guest contributors has written about it. Uh, you know, anything from like gum issues, you know, gum disease, which mm -hmm. there's a link to inflammation and PCOS to hearing loss, actually. Um, there's some studies that show that women with PCOS um, are, are susceptible to hearing loss. I mean, just some things that you would never even connect to PCOS, um, you know, there, there could be a connection. So I, I want to end the podcast um, with ways that, you know, you counsel your patients to um, improve their quality of life. Yeah, so I think that, you know, again, when it comes to this, I think the issue is trying to figure out or the, the crux of management is to figure out what's bothering somebody and how can we try to fix it. And the good news is that in the studies that have looked at quality of life for women with PCOS and treatment, they've almost uniformly found that treatment improves quality of life. So, um, you know, that is, I think, a very um, kind of positive finding to have. And so, you know, it depends on what the situation is. For example, you know, I read um, a study that was looking at actually even um, birth control. And so, you know, if somebody's main issue is, you know, irregular bleeding, something as simple as fixing that issue can obviously improve their quality of life. Now, we do know that for some women, maybe birth control, they don't feel great on it. So if somebody's coming in with, you know, a history of mood and anxiety issues, then, you know, maybe that's not the best choice, right? So you have to really be specific. There's no silver bullet that's the right answer for everybody. But, you know, each study that looked at, okay, well, this is something that um, is bothering, you know, this cohort of women, and we tried to treat it. And in many cases, there was one study that looked at lifestyle modification, and it found that even if women weren't necessarily losing weight, just kind of going through the steps of trying to modify their lifestyle improved their quality of life. So I think that it goes back to what we've been saying, you know, kind of throughout, which is that kind of giving somebody back control and saying, okay, well, here are some of the things you can do, um, and we're going to work on it, and it's not going to be an overnight fix, but you're taking steps in the right direction is powerfully a thing that can change, you know, somebody's mental health and, and their feelings of how their life, you know, quality is. So to me, I think that that's really the, the uplifting message in all of this is that, you know, doing your best, whatever that means, trying to find the right resources, coming to search your site, Amy, um, all of those things are things that I think can help people feel better. Um, and, you know, and like I said before, finding, you know, the right care team of people that, can help you, whether, you know, you need help with your diet or, you know, getting a trainer or whatever it is, you know, whatever the things are that are bothering you, finding and assembling the right care team to help you feel in control and like you're doing the right things, even if they're not working right away, even if it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back, I think those are the things that make a difference. Yeah, and, and speaking of finding the right health care team, if you live in Houston, you would be so fortunate because um, Dr. Khadija is now practicing in Houston. Maybe um, you could just let people know again where where you're at and how they could um, you know work with you. 
Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I'm joining a practice in Houston called Houston IVF. We do, you know, full uh, service reproductive endocrinology care. So I'll be doing um, a lot of help for women that are trying to start their families or grow their families, but also uh, anybody that, you know, needs help managing their PCOS. And I will be starting uh, there in March. So if you just Google Houston IVF, you'll find our practice website. um, And I would be more than happy to meet any of you in person. Well, it's just been great having you back on the PCOS Diva podcast and talking about PCOS and quality of life issues, and I'm really looking forward to your upcoming guest post. All right. Thanks, Amy. I look forward to sending it to you soon, okay? (laughs) Great. Well, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for joining us today. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and learned a little something that can help you along in your journey. For more information about PCOS and PCOS Diva products and programs, visit PCOSDiva.com. This podcast was sponsored by my new book, Healing PCOS. It's my proven 21-day diet and lifestyle plan to help women with PCOS take back control of their health and resolve their symptoms. Healing PCOS offers you daily, small, manageable steps that help alleviate symptoms and control the inflammation, hormonal imbalance, and insulin resistance that underlie PCOS. The 21-day plan consists of a 21-day anti-inflammatory hormone-balancing meal plan, including meal prep and plan-ahead tips to make eating like a PCOS diva sustainable, 85 delicious recipes, daily lessons, and self-care exercises. I have helped tens of thousands of women with PCOS take back control over their health and their lives through lasting healing and sustainable lifestyle change. So whether you're newly diagnosed or have struggled a lifetime with PCOS, this book is for you. Find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere books are sold.